Uh, a couple years ago, uh, many years ago, I, I started snowboarding. I had some friends that, that snowboarded and uh, I was like, all right, sure, I'll go snowboarding. Uh, picked snowboarding instead of skiing because I'd had a terrible skiing experience when I was younger and the terrible experience was a complete inability to do it. Um, I find that being horrifically bad at something makes it less fun. So I gave snowboarding a shot. I was like, okay, this is fine. You know, I like stuff and gear and snow. It's like, oh, there's lots, all this stuff and gear I can get. So I was into snowboarding a little bit. Um, my freshman year of college, I went to a school that had a small ski area nearby. So we'd occasionally go, uh, you know, go. And it, it was just something we did. Like I'd go with some friends. We'd go, we'd go snowboarding. It was, it was fine. Um, one particular day towards the end of the season, uh, we went out snowboarding. And I, let's not pretend like, I'm not saying I was world-class. I'm not bombing down double black diamonds. I'm not a thrill seeker. So I'm more like cautiously enjoying the same slope as 12-year-olds. Uh, but there's one particular moment where I'm, uh, I'm going down this hill and I'm carving back towards the mountain. So I'm like kind of facing the mountain, kind of curving back this way. And I, my back edge caught a, a patch of ice, caught like a, a, this patch of kind of bad snow and ice. And I fell backwards, hit my head, slid 75 feet until I came to a stop. And I'm laying there in the snow and I'm cold and I'm wet and my head hurts. And all I can think is, I paid money for this like a lot of money, like I paid a lot of money for this and I can't, couldn't help but in that moment think things like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, I, I don't know that I even particularly love this. Like, what is the, what's the point of this? Is this even really worth it? You ever felt like that about anything in your life? Like, is this really worth it? Just three of us, the rest of you are living charm lives. Okay, that's great. Thank you. The three of, we'll commiserate afterwards. The rest of you, I want your life. Okay. Well, we're gonna look at Psalm 73 this morning and the writer of Psalm 73 definitely felt that way. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm 73. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms are kind of right in the middle. Open your Bible in half and uh, just keep going until you find 73. We're going to read this in three parts because that's really how the writer wrote this. Now, part of the reason why Psalms are so meaningful is it gives us an inside look into how people felt. We get an inside look into the reality of what faith looks like for different people. And this is a particularly meaningful Psalm for me. Starts out in verse one saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. How does this guy feel right now? Not good, not good. He is discouraged, he is frustrated, he is angry because he sees what's going on in the world and it doesn't make sense to him. It doesn't make sense to him. First thing we're gonna look at in this first chunk is when we are overwhelmed by injustice, we feel discouraged. When we're overwhelmed by injustice, we feel discouraged. The psalm starts out great, right? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are impure in heart. We're like, okay, I can get behind that. And it's like, but, and there's always a but. Just when I started to feel good, there's always a but. But 
This is what the world looks like right now. This is what's happening. And he's really talking about injustice here. And let me be clear what I mean by that. This isn't talking, this psalm doesn't talk about an outward approach, sort of a communal approach to, to big picture injustice. This is all about an inward response to personal injustice, to the things that we feel are unwarranted or unfair. Because what he's outlining is, why is there evil going on? What's happening here? This is not fair. God, where are you in this? Right, that's what he's talking about. This isn't talking about how we together should deal with injustice. This is talking about how you and how you and how I should deal with personal injustice with the things we experience. Like a coworker getting a promotion that you felt like you deserved because you've been there longer and you picked up extra work because of your commitment to this company. Or maybe it's, you don't get the part that you tried out for because you feel like the director is, is friends with the other person's family and, 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 and that's why they got it. Or maybe you're married and I know when you're married, you know, two become one and you share each other's interests, but you really love cake and your wife loves brownies and, and she makes brownies all the time, even though she knows you don't like brownies because cake's only for special occasions, but cake's not just for special occasions. Cake is delicious and you shouldn't have to eat brownies all the time because you don't really like brownies. It's just a hypothetical I made up. That's the context of this Psalm, of Psalm 73. Evil exists, but it just doesn't seem like God is doing anything about it. You ever felt like that? That's the problem of evil we face. He asks the questions just overtly. Why does it seem like bad people prosper and good people suffer? Why does it seem like selfishness pays off and selflessness goes unrewarded? We often feel like that in our lives. We often feel that. We feel that in a macro perspective, on a global perspective, because there's things like natural disasters that, that cause hundreds of billions of dollars worth of damage and, and take thousands of lives and, and or things like human trafficking that, that it would exist in the world is that some people will take other people and sell them into slavery. How is that, how is that a thing? How is that possible? But we feel it on a micro scale too, with sickness, disease, with abuse, with losing a job, with loneliness, with a broken family. Why do those things happen? Why is that happening to me? God, why would you allow this stuff to exist? We feel that in our community when tragedies happen. It just doesn't seem fair. Here's the reality. I don't have a good answer for why these specific things happen, why the specific evils we face happen. But I can give you a big picture answer, and it's this. Sin is a reality in our world. Sin is a reality in our world. That humanity, we as humanity have rebelled from God, have rejected him, have said, we don't need you to find good and meaning and purpose. And we have introduced this brokenness into the world that evil exists because sin exists. Now, I'm not saying you experience some evil specifically because of some specific sin you committed. Maybe that's the case, I don't know. But what I tell you is that evil exists because sin exists. God created a perfect world where evil had no place. We look forward to the day when God transforms everything into that perfect world again forever, when sin is no more. But while sin exists, so does evil. We live in a broken world and injustice and suffering are a reality in that world and they will be until Jesus comes back and God makes everything new. And the writer struggled deeply with this, deeply with this. And we see it in verse two and three. 
He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We don't want bad things to happen. We don't want bad things to happen to us. And listen, let me just say up front, that's not an unreasonable attitude. I'm not saying that we should all leave being like, come on, bad things. It's not an unreasonable attitude to not want bad things to happen. The problem is often our response to when it does. When bad things happen, we can struggle when it seems unfair because our worldview is framed around life being good and enjoyable. When we say something is unfair, what we're often saying is that we don't deserve the unfair thing. We deserve something better. We feel like we deserve the things we desire. We deserve it. But we're not promised those things. And when we, even when we get those things we feel like deserve, it doesn't really fill us the way that we hope. Either we get what we want and realize it's not enough or we need more or we get what we want and instead of being thankful, we become arrogant and prideful and convinced that we merely got what we should have gotten all along. Injustice happens. You will be wronged somehow. I know, that's the depressing message, right? That's not like, you're like, oh, that's not what I, I didn't come for this. Nowhere are we ever promised that life will never be hard, that life will always be fair, that we will get what we want. When we are in the middle of those kinds of, of situations in our lives, it can be overwhelming and discouraging. When injustice crushes us, it's because we're focusing on our surroundings. That's what the writer was experiencing here. That's all he could see. And it was deeply discouraging to him. He continues on in verses 13 to 16. It says, surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. He sinks deeper here. Second thing we're going to look at is that when we're overwhelmed by doubt, we despair. When we're overwhelmed by doubt, we despair. Because remember, 13 and 14, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant and saw prosperity of the wicked. He's saying like, what am I even doing right now? Like I'm trying to do the right thing and all I see is everybody else who doesn't care about that. Their lives are awesome. Said another way, it's like, I just get trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. This is a dark moment. It's a dark moment. He looks around him and he sees the wicked flourish and he wrestles with doubt. And that doubt is driven by his observations. The evil that he sees around him is feeding his doubt, right? He's like, well, if, if this isn't true, then, then maybe other things aren't true, right? If God's not gonna protect me in this, if God's gonna allow evil to win, then, then maybe other things aren't true. Doubt is not uncommon. Doubt is not uncommon. Questions are good. Questions, they're, they're welcomed. In fact, one of the rich things that we see about Psalms is the totality of human emotion on display and that God is not threatened by it, that it's not too big for God, that God is big enough and powerful enough and loving and gracious and merciful enough to take the brunt of our fear and confusion and doubt and anger and everything. 
Questions are good. But unasked questions can lead to doubt. And doubt can lead us down a slippery slope that quickly turns into despair. When we lose, when we lose all hope, when we, when we can't see anything good in the future, doubt that's not addressed and not engaged with can get us in trouble. The psalm shows us how we can ask God those questions because the writer sees all this stuff and it, and it, it just all seems so hopeless. It all seems so hopeless. You can hear his pain. Why did I even bother? What was the point? Nothing works out for me. Nothing is easy. I suffer and I hurt every day and every day brings more of the same. And if we really parse that though, we see it's alarmingly self-centered because really what he's saying is, what did I get out of this? How did this benefit me? All right, that thing happened to them, but where's my piece of the pie? Where's my good thing? Where's my wealth? Where's my success? Where's my stuff? I deserve that. Several years ago, I found myself in a situation where I was just getting the snot beat out of me. Not physically, but just emotionally every day, just getting beat up. And it took a toll on me because it was by people that I had trusted. It, it was in a, in a space where I thought this shouldn't happen. It was with Christians. And it's like, well, this surely Christians can't do this. And I asked myself the same questions. And I started to get more and more hurt. And I started to doubt and then to despair. And then I started that would metastasize into anger. And I would have these conversations with God that it's like, why are you, God, what, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? You know, this is wrong. This is not okay. I mean, how, how is it possible that you are fine with this going on? Why aren't you interceding? Why aren't you protecting me? Why, are, why don't you care about me right now? And it would fill me with this anger. I just would burn going, you don't love me. If you did, you would do something. It was overwhelming for me. But looking back, what I realized is when I was saying, God, where are you in the midst of this? Is that God was walking with me the whole time. I couldn't see it at the moment because I didn't want to. Because what I wanted was God to address this situation the way I wanted to. And what I understand now is that God was allowing me to experience this hurt and this pain because there were things in my own soul he was trying to dig out. That doesn't justify the wrong that was done, but it does mean that God was able to work and redeem this, that I might better understand who he is and who I am in relationship to him. God was with me the whole time. It was I, I'm the one who lost sight of it. We have a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are when we believe that we are the good, when we ask for more good and when we feel like we deserve more. We have a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are when we believe that God owes us something. Verse one says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Folks, that doesn't just mean clean morally. It means totally and wholly committed to God. And the challenge with that is that's a very high bar. 
we want to lower the expectations for ourselves, right? We want to lower the expectations for us and go, well, I'm good. I'm clean more. Like, uh, like God, why aren't you doing it? I'm, uh, you said you'd be good. And the reality is we fall short of that standard. The writer here confuses bad things happening to him with God not being good to him. I'll say that one more time. The writer here confuses bad things happening to him with God not being good to him. And I don't know about you, but that challenges me deeply. Because, man, I, knew, I, I do that too. When despair drowns us, it's because we're focusing on ourselves. What do we get out of this? How do we benefit? Why, God, why aren't you doing what we want? The psalmist finishes this in 16 to 28 by saying, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. But here's the pivot in verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. The evildoers is who he's talking about. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. There's hope here. And at some point we feel relief because otherwise it's like, well, that was depressing. You leave, it's like, okay, great. So life's hard, evil happens, bad stuff's gonna happen to me. The end. But the story of the Bible, the, 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 the main theme of, of the gospel, of God's good news towards us is that in the midst of our brokenness, God has entered and stepped into our story. And what we see here from the psalmist is when we are overwhelmed by God, we find hope. When we're overwhelmed by God, we find hope. Everything turns in verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Really what he's saying there is this, I came back to you. You didn't leave me, I came back to you. I experienced your presence and I remembered who you truly are. He said, starts by saying, right, evil exists and you're not doing anything and why is all this stuff happening? It doesn't seem fair. And then it says he encounters God in a real way and he's reminded of who God is. He's reminded that God is sovereign and we are not, that God is in charge and we are not and his life is reoriented around this. It's a fundamental shift moving from self-focus and discouragement that leads to despair to remembering who God is and who the writer is in relationship to him. He remembers that God is eternal and evil is not. Evil has an expiration date. That God sees things that he does not. That God understands in ways he never can. He experiences again that God is to be worshiped. 
He looks forward to the day, not when God will address evil or deal with evil, but when the fulfillment of how God has already dealt with evil. We don't look forward to God's victory over evil. God has already won. We look forward to the day when we get to experience that too. The end is not in debate. We're not crossing our fingers and really hoping. God kicks butt and takes names and wins. That's a theological concept if you wanna take that with you. He wins. And we can look forward to that. I love just this little picture of till I enter the sanctuary of God and experience him and worship him. Worship changes us. It drives our heart to the object of our worship. And when he connected with God and, and was in his presence, everything changed for him. 2017, my family and I moved to Indiana as I went out to join staff at a church there. And uh, the two things that we loved about Indiana, overwhelmingly, my favorite two things were the people we met, we made phenomenal friends that we'll have for the rest of our lives, and property values. Yeah, I grew up around here. When we moved out to Indiana, we met with a realtor, and she's like, well, you should probably consider building a house. You know, that's probably your best option. And I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry, rich people build houses. I just assumed every house came 30 years old with stuff broken. So we, have the, we were living in a townhouse in Chalfont. We moved to this, this big house in Indiana. And uh, because we'd moved from a townhouse, like our life was built around kind of this smaller space. And so we get to Indiana, we have a much bigger space and we had a problem, a very fundamental problem, really a very serious problem. We had really bad Wi-Fi signal because our router had been for a much smaller house, right? And so now we have this big house and, and the Wi-Fi doesn't reach everywhere. And it's like, that's, I mean, that is a serious issue. That is a serious issue, a bad Wi-Fi signal. Because the, the wire for the input for the internet was on the second floor. And so what we found is if I was sitting downstairs, if I was in the living room, if I was in the kitchen, I didn't get great signals really slow. Like it was really hard to watch Netflix or do the other really important things that you need internet at home for. And it, it, the only way to really download something was if I walked upstairs into the room. Like, but I didn't always want to walk upstairs to the room, right? It's like, I don't, like I'm tired of kids. Like, I just, I want to sit here. The whole point is I just want to sit here and do this. Like, I don't care that much about my fantasy team to like inconvenience myself. I just like want to be able to check it here. But it worked every time. Like every time I walked closer to the, to the router, it, it, the better the internet worked. And if I was standing right next to it, that stuff was moving fast. That's a picture of our relationship with God. Closer I got to the router, the stronger the signal, the better it worked. When it doesn't work, it's not because the signal changes, it's because I just don't feel like moving closer to it. When we experience the richness of God's presence, it changes us. It changes us. The closer we are to him, the better it works. Now, that's not saying that God works better when we're closer. It's saying we get to see him for who he is and understand him better the closer we are. This is a powerful moment for the writer. It, ch it changes everything. He's able to say everything he says in, in the end of these verses because of that moment when he, when he experienced God in a deeper and realer and truer and richer way. When I was in high school, uh, my mom took me to, uh, to get my eyes checked one day. Uh, 
And I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm fine. Like, it's just, you know, I'd sit in the back of class because when you're in high school, it's like the back of something is always the coolest version of it. You want to sit in the back of the bus, you know, you want to sit in the back of the classroom. Now, as an adult, like, I want to sit in the first row because, like, I'm not walking if I don't have extra things if I don't have to. I'm like, what's up? First off, if I sit in the front row, I can get off quicker. But when I was in high school, it's like, no, no, that's, there was. There's like this prestige about sitting in the back. So it's in the back of the classroom. Um, I just, just, and I just assumed everybody viewed the board like this. I just assumed that's what everybody did. Like there's a maximum viewable distance of the board and the back row in every classroom I was ever in was just a little beyond that. That's just kind of what I assumed. So my mom takes me to the, to the the doctor get my eyes checked. And if you've ever gotten, gotten your eyes checked, anyone wearing glasses, gotten your eyes checked, you know, they bring out that huge machine and you're worried they're going to like harvest your organs. And you're like, what? So I'm sorry, what is this? Do I, do I have to sign up for me? Is there another witness in this room? What's going on? And then they do that thing where if you've ever gotten glasses, they kind of put different lenses in and they're like, is this better or is this better? You know, or is this better or is this better? So they ask, and it's like, oh, I guess maybe the second one. Is this better or is this better? It's like, oh, I don't know, maybe the I don't know, man, maybe it's the same. Is this better or is this better? Oh, maybe it's the third one. And then finally, they're like, is this better or is this better? I'm like, oh my goodness, I can see. It was incredible. I mean, I got glasses. I felt like I was a low-level superhero. We're driving down the road. I'm like reading road signs. I'm spotting stuff. There's a deer. I bet you didn't see that. It's like a whole new world opened up. I didn't know what I was missing, but when I got glasses, I mean, it changed the way I saw the world. That moment changed everything. Experiencing God in a personal way, the writer tells us it changes everything. It says in verses 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What he's saying here, God is the strength of my heart, means I don't have to be strong enough on my own, that God provides me the strength, that God is my strength to endure, to flourish in situations that I don't ever think I could. And then I love this nugget, there are my portion. God is my portion forever. God cares for and provides for his people because portion really is pointing back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, priests had specific responsibilities, they couldn't own land. They, they couldn't, we're, we're not entitled to kind of the same level of, they had other responsibilities. They're caring for the temple. They're, they're God's instruments to communicate kind of his heart to his people. And so they weren't able to work the same way because they had other things to do. And so God cared for them because Israelites were supposed to take a portion of what was given to God, that give it to the priest, that the priest took as their own, right? So God gave them their portion, they existed because God provided for them. And that's what they're talking about here. The writer realizes again that God will deal with evil and wickedness, that God will deal with sin, that God doesn't ignore it, that any prosperity is short-lived and any success is temporary. He looks back and realizes he was envious of things that didn't matter. And he was envious of people who are doomed without God. He wanted things to make his life fuller and richer, forgetting that God is the deepest and fullest good and that being with him is what we crave. I love this idea here. The, the real misery here was not his suffering. The real misery was his disconnection from God. His disconnection from God. The real joy wasn't found in getting what he wanted. It was found in relationship with God, about being with him, not doing, but being with him. God himself is the goodness we long for. God himself is the goodness we long for. 
And we need to think that way because when we think deserve, we get ourselves in trouble. Deserve is a dangerous word. If we fully understood deserve, we would definitely not want what we deserve. So what we deserve for our sin is, is, is eternal separation from God. Only one ever lived who deserved perfection and he gave it up so we could know it too. That's who Jesus is. God's answer to the problem of evil. That Jesus, in being fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life and deserved nothing that he suffered. But he suffered that so we could get what we do not deserve. God has dealt with evil. That's what the cross did. Defeated sin and death once and for all. Think of it like playing chess against a grand master, right? You are gonna lose in 12 moves. You just don't know it yet. It's gonna happen. It is a foregone conclusion. The end may still be yet to be played out, but it might as well be written in stone. God has defeated evil once and for all. Nothing about the writer's circumstance changed here, and yet his attitude and his outlook on life were radically altered because when hope overwhelms us, it's because we're focusing on God. When hope overwhelms us, it's because we're focusing on God. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I just wanna give you a couple quick thoughts as we, as we close. If you're anything like me, you're a doer, right? We know that's true about Americans, particularly those of us, when you live in the Northeast, we're doers. Like, what do I need to do? Tell me what to do. You wanna know how to do, how to fix it, how to make things better. And oftentimes the Bible does lay out very specific things to do and steps to take, but sometimes it's not that clean. And this is one of those times because here what changed everything was not believing a certain thing, but experiencing God richly. Experiencing God richly. Are you experiencing him that way? Instead of God being a piece of our lives, God wants to be the lens through which we see and experience everything. For the writer, when that happened, his uncertainty in God's involvement became confidence in God's sovereignty. His frustration with God, God's absence became his faith in God's presence. And he was able to entrust his, himself, his life, his health, his suffering, his fears, his frustrations for the future to God, to the God who knew him and loved him and cared for him. Verse 23 and 24, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Three things for you to think about this week. First is God holds your hand. Hand holding communicates relationship, intimacy, care, tenderness. I hold my kids' hands to lead them and guide them and support them. And I can't tell you the number of times that if I hadn't been holding one of my kids' hands, they would have face planted and we'd be making a trip to the dentist. Me holding their hand shows them where to go and cares for them as we go that way. God holds your hand. He doesn't just point the way. He leads the way. He walks with us. Second thing is he guides you. God holds your hand and God guides you. He communicates the knowledge of where to go. He knows the destination, how to get there, what's coming ahead, how to navigate it and all. We get to live the story with the author of it. We get to live the story with the one who knows how it ends. God guides you. And lastly, God receives you. That communicates the preparation of a place. It's a huge welcome for us. It means he's waiting for us. We're not just allowed into his presence. We are wanted and welcome. And think about that. 
We don't live life to do a series of good things so that we are allowed to go somewhere. God walks with us here that we might find our way to his presence forever. Like the writer, we too confuse bad things happening to us with God not being good to us, but goodness is who he is. It's not something he does. So when we experience injustice, when we experience evil, when we experience the brokenness of the world and in our lives in real and personal ways, we can either turn away from God in anger or hurt or pain, or we can turn to the God who loves us and knows us and is in charge for hope and for comfort. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Father God, my hope and prayer for us this morning, same as my hope and prayer for myself, Lord, you have created us to live life with you. And when we don't, it just doesn't work. And we can get overwhelmed by the stuff we experience and by the, the injustice that we see and the unfairness of it all, the, the capriciousness of life when tragedy occurs. But Father, you invite us to live life with you and to view our existence the same way you do, that this is but a time because you have called us to be with you forever that we can endure those things because you make it possible. You, we can endure those things because you are with us in the midst of it. We can endure those things because we know the day will come when evil will exist no more, where pain will be, will be eradicated forever. We thank you for that. Because sometimes all we have is the hope that you love us and you are in charge. When it doesn't make sense to us, we can look to the one who knows all. Father, would you draw us closer to you that we might surrender more of ourselves and see this week in a new way how you have walked with us and are walking with us through those seasons of life. That we would be drawn to experience the richness of your presence in new ways. We thank you and we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.